Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Aeneid 1, Book 5, by Plotinus. Translated by Kenneth Sylvan Guthrie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jeffrey Edwards. First Ennead, Book 5. Does Happiness Increase with Time? Happiness has nothing to do with duration of time. 1. Does happiness increase with duration of time? No, for the feeling of happiness exists only in the present. The memory of past happiness could not add anything to happiness itself. Happiness is not a word, but a state of soul. But a state of soul is a present experience, such as, for instance, the actualization of life. Happiness is not the satisfaction of the desire to live. 2. Might happiness not be the satisfaction of the desire of living and activity, inasmuch as this desire is ever-present with us. Hardly. First, according to this hypothesis, the happiness of to-morrow would ever be greater than that of to-day, and that of the following day than that of the day before, and so on to infinity. In this case, the measure of happiness would no longer be virtue, but duration. Then, the beatitude of the divinities will also have to become greater from day to day. It would no longer be perfect, and could never become so. Besides, desire finds its satisfaction in the possession of what is present, both now and in the future. So long as these present circumstances exist, their possession constitutes happiness. Further, as the desire of living can be no more than the desire to exist, the latter desire can refer to the present only inasmuch as real existence, essence, inheres only in the present. Desire for a future time or for some later event means no more than a desire to preserve what one already possesses. Desire refers neither to the future nor the past, but to what exists at present. What is sought is not a perpetual progression in the future but the enjoyment of what exists from the present moment onward. Increased happiness would result only from more perfect grasp. 3. What shall be said of him who lived happily during a longer period, who has longer contemplated the same spectacle? If such longer contemplation resulted in a clearer idea thereof, the length of time has served some useful purpose. But if the agent contemplated it in the same manner for the whole extent of time, he possesses no advantage over him who contemplated it only once. Pleasure is unconnected with happiness. 4. 
it might be objected that the former of these men enjoyed pleasure longer than the other. This consideration has nothing to do with happiness. If by this enjoyed pleasure we mean the free exercise of intelligence, the pleasure referred to is then identical with the happiness here meant. This higher pleasure referred to is only to possess what is here ever present. What of it is past is of no further value. Length of happiness does not affect its quality. 5. Would equal happiness be predicated of three men, one who had been happy from his life's beginning to its end, the other only at its end, and the third who had been happy, but who ceased being such? This comparison is not between three men who are happy, but between one man who is happy, with two who are deprived of happiness, and that, at the present moment, when happiness counts most. If, then, one of them have any advantage, he possesses it as a man actually happy compared with such as are not. He therefore surpasses the two others by the actual possession of happiness. If unhappiness increase with time, why should not happiness do so? 6. It is generally agreed that all calamities, sufferings, griefs, and similar evils are aggravated in proportion to their duration. If, then, in all these cases evil be increased with time, why should not the same circumstance obtain in the contrary case? Why should happiness also not be increased? Referring to griefs and sufferings, it might reasonably be said that they are increased by duration. When, for example, sickness is prolonged and becomes a habitual condition, the body suffers more and more profoundly as time goes on. If, however, evil ever remain at the same degree, it does not grow worse, and there is no need of complaining but of the present. Consideration of the past evil amounts to considering the traces left by evil. The morbid disposition, whose intensity is increased by time, because its seriousness is proportionate to its duration. In this case, it is not the length of time, but the aggravation of the evil which adds to the misfortune. But the new degree of intensity does not subsist simultaneously with the old, and it is unreasonable to predicate an increase as summation of what is no more to what now is. On the contrary, it is the fixed characteristic of happiness to have a fixed term, to remain ever the same. Here also, the only increase possibly due to duration of time depends on the relation between an increase in virtue and one in happiness, and the element to be reckoned with here is not the number of years of happiness, but the degree of virtue finally acquired. As addition is possible with time, why cannot happiness increase? 7. It might be objected that it is inconsistent to consider the present only, exclusive of the past, as in the case of happiness, when we do not do so in respect of time. For the addition of past to present unquestionably lengthens time. If, then, we may properly say that time becomes longer, why may we not say the same of happiness? Were we to do so, we would be applying happiness to divisions of time, while it is precisely 
to bring out the indivisibility of happiness that it is considered to be measured by the present exclusively. While considering time, in respect of things that have vanished, such as, for instance, the dead, it is perfectly reasonable to reckon the past. But it would be unreasonable to compare past happiness with present happiness in respect to duration, because it would be treating happiness as something accidental and temporary. Whatever might be the length of time that preceded the present, all that can be said of it is that it is no more. To regard duration, while considering happiness, is to try to disperse and fraction something that is one and indivisible, something that exists only in the present. That is why time is called an image of eternity, inasmuch as it tends to destroy eternity's permanence through its own dispersion. By abstracting permanence from eternity and appropriating it, time destroys eternity. For a short period, permanence may survive in association with time, but as soon as it becomes fused with it, eternity perishes. Now, as happiness consists in the enjoyment of a life that is good, namely in that which is proper to essence in itself, because none better exists, it must, instead of time, have as a measure eternity itself, a principle which admits neither increase nor diminution, which cannot be compared to any length whose nature it is to be indivisible and superior to time. No comparison, therefore, should be instituted between essence and non-essence, eternity and time, the perpetual and the eternal, nor should extension be predicated of the indivisible. If we regard existence of essence in itself, it will be necessary to regard it entire, to consider it not as the perpetuity of time, but as the very life of eternity, a life which, instead of consisting of a series of centuries, exists entire since all centuries. Not even memories of the past increase happiness. 8. Somebody might object that by subsisting till the present, the memory of the past adds something more to him who has long lived happily. In this case, it will be necessary to examine what is meant by this memory. If it mean the memory of former wisdom, and if it mean that he who would possess this memory would become wiser on account of it, then this memory differs from our question, which studies happiness and not wisdom. If it mean the memory of pleasure, it would imply that the happy man has need of much pleasure, and cannot remain satisfied with what is present. Besides, there is no proof that the memory of a past pleasure is at all pleasant. On the contrary, it would be entirely ridiculous to remember with delight having tasted a delicious dish the day before, and, still more ridiculous, remembering such an enjoyment ten years ago. It would be just as ridiculous to pride oneself on having been a wise man last year. Not even the memory of virtue increases happiness. 9. Could not the memory of virtuous actions contribute to happiness? No, for such a memory cannot exist in a man who has no virtue at present, and who thereby is driven to seek out the memory of past virtues. Length of time is of no importance, not even as opportunity of virtue. 10. 
another objection is that length of time would give opportunity for doing many beautiful deeds, while this opportunity is denied him who lives happily only a short period. This may be answered by denying happiness to a man on the grounds of having done many beautiful deeds. If several parts of time and several actions are to constitute happiness, then it would be constituted by things that are no more, that are past, and by present things, whereas our definition of happiness limits it exclusively to the present. Then we considered whether length of time add to happiness. There remains only to examine whether happiness of long duration be superior because of yielding opportunities of doing more beautiful deeds. To begin with, the man who is inactive may be just as happy, if not more happy, than he who is active. Besides, it is not actions themselves which yield happiness. The sources of happiness are states of mind, which are the principles of beautiful actions. The wise man enjoys welfare while active, but not because of this activity. He derives this welfare not from contingent things, but from what he possesses in himself. For it might happen even to a vicious man to save his fatherland, or to feel pleasure in seeing it saved by some other. It is not, then, these activities which are the causes of the enjoyment of happiness. True beatitude and the joys it yields must be derived from the constant disposition of the soul. To predicate it of activity would be to make it depend on things alien to virtue and the soul. The soul's actualization consists in being wise and in exercising her self-activity. This is true happiness. End of Ennead 1, Book 5《Ennead 1, Book 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Geoffrey Edwards. Ennead's by Plotinus. Translated by Kenneth Guthrie. First Ennead, Book 6 of Beauty. Review of Beauty of Daily Life 1. Beauty chiefly affects the sense of sight. Still, the ear perceives it also, both in the harmony of words and in the different kinds of music, for songs and verses are equally beautiful. On rising from the domain of the senses to a superior region, we also discover beauty in occupations, actions, habits, sciences and virtues. Whether there exists a type of beauty still higher will have to be ascertained by discussion. Problems Concerning Higher Beauty What is the cause that certain bodies seem beautiful? That our ears listen with pleasure to rhythms judged beautiful? And that we love the purely moral beauties? Does the beauty of all these objects derive from some unique, immutable principle? Or will we recognize some one principle of beauty for the body, and some other for something else? What, then, are these principles, if there are several? Or 
which is this principle if there is but one what is the principle by participation in which the body is beautiful first there are certain objects such as bodies whose beauty exists only by participation instead of being inherent in the very essence of the subject such are beautiful in themselves as is for example virtue indeed the same bodies seem beautiful at one time while at another they lack beauty consequently there is a great difference between being a body and being beautiful what then is the principle whose presence in a body produces beauty therein what is that element in the bodies which moves the spectator and which attracts fixes and charms his glances this is the first problem to solve for on finding this principle we shall use it as a means to resolve other questions polemic against symmetry the stoic definition of beauty the stoics like almost everybody insist that visual beauty consists in the proportion of the parts relatively to each other and to the whole joined to the grace of colors if then as in this case the beauty of bodies in general consists in the symmetry and just proportion of their parts beauty could not consist of anything simple and necessarily could not appear in anything but what was compound only the totality will be beautiful the parts by themselves will possess no beauty they will be beautiful only by their relation with the totality nevertheless if the totality is beautiful it would seem also necessary that the parts be beautiful for indeed beauty could never result from the assemblage of ugly things beauty must therefore be spread among all the parts according to the same doctrine the colors which like sunlight are beautiful are beautiful but simple and those whose beauty is not derived from proportion will also be excluded from the domain of beauty according to this hypothesis how will gold be beautiful the brilliant lightning in the night even the stars would not be beautiful to contemplate in the sphere of sounds also it would be necessary to insist that what is simple possesses no beauty still in a beautiful harmony every sound even when isolated is beautiful while preserving the same proportions the same countenance seems at one time beautiful and at another ugly evidently there is but one conclusion namely that proportion is not beauty itself but that it derives its beauty from some superior principle this will appear more clearly from further examples let us examine occupations and utterances if also their beauty depended on proportion what would be the function of proportion when considering occupations laws studies and sciences relations of proportion could not obtain in scientific speculations no nor even in the mutual agreement of these speculations on the other hand even bad things may show a certain mutual agreement and harmony as for instance were we to assert that wisdom is softening of the brain and that justice is a generous folly here we have two revoltingly absurd statements which agree perfectly and harmonize mutually
Further, every virtue is a soul beauty far truer than any that we have till now examined, yet it could not admit of proportion, as it involves neither size nor number. Again, granting that the soul is divided into several faculties, who will undertake to decide which combination of these faculties, or of the speculations to which the soul devotes itself, will produce beauty? Moreover, if beauty is but proportion, what beauty could be predicated of pure intelligence? Beauty consists in kinship to the soul. 2. Returning to our first consideration, we shall examine the nature of the element of beauty in bodies. It is something perceivable at the very first glance, something which the soul recognizes as kindred and sympathetic to her own nature, which she welcomes and assimilates. But as soon as she meets an ugly object, she recoils, repudiates it, and rejects it as something foreign towards which her real nature feels antipathy. That is the reason why the soul, being such as it is, namely of an essence superior to all other beings, when she perceives an object kindred to her own nature, or which reveals only some traces of it, rejoices, is transported, compares this object with her own nature, thinks of herself and of her intimate being, as it would be impossible to fail to perceive this resemblance. Beauty consists in participation in a form. How can both sensible and intelligible objects be beautiful? Because, as we said, sensible objects participate in a form, while a shapeless object by nature capable of receiving shape, physical, and form, intelligible, remains without reason or form, it is ugly. That which remains completely foreign to all divine reason, a reason proceeding from the universal soul, is absolute ugliness. Any object should be considered ugly which is not entirely moulded by informing reason, the matter not being able to receive perfectly the form which the soul gives it. On joining matter, form coordinates the different parts which are to compose unity, combines them, and by their harmony produces something which is a unit. Since form is one, that which it fashions will also have to be one, as far as a composite object can be one. When such an object has arrived at unity, beauty resides in it, and it communicates itself to the parts as well as to the whole. When it meets a whole, the parts of which are perfectly similar, it interpenetrates it evenly. Thus it would show itself now in an entire building, then in a single stone, later in art products as well as in the works of nature. Thus bodies become beautiful by communion with, or participation in, a reason descending upon it from the divine universal soul. The soul appreciates the beautiful by an aesthetic sense. 3. The soul appreciates beauty by an especially ordered faculty, whose sole function it is to appreciate all that concerns beauty, even when the other faculties take part in this judgment. Often the soul makes her aesthetic decisions by comparison with the form of the beautiful which is within her, 
using this form as a standard by which to judge. But what agreement can anything corporeal have with what is incorporeal? For example, how can an architect judge a building placed before him as beautiful by comparing it with the idea which he has within himself? The only explanation can be that on abstracting the stones the exterior object is nothing but the interior form, no doubt divided within the extent of the matter, but still one, though manifested in the manifold. When the senses perceive in an object the form which combines, unites, and dominates a substance which lacks shape, and therefore is of a contrary nature, and if they also perceive a shape which distinguishes itself from the other shapes by its elegance, then the soul, uniting these multiple elements, fuses them, comparing them to the indivisible form which she bears within herself. Then she pronounces their agreement, kinship, and harmony with that interior type. Instances of Correspondence of Outer Sense Beauty with its Idea Thus a worthy man, perceiving in a youth the character of virtue, is agreeably impressed, because he observes that the youth harmonizes with the true type of virtue which he bears within himself. Thus also the beauty of color, though simple in form, reduces under its sway that obscurity of matter by the presence of the light which is something incorporeal, a reason and a form. Likewise, fire surpasses all other bodies in beauty because it stands to all other elements in the relation of a form it occupies the highest regions it is the subtlest of bodies because it most approaches the incorporeal beings without permitting itself to be penetrated by other bodies it penetrates them all without itself cooling it communicates to them its heat by its own essence it possesses color and communicates it to others. It shines, and coruscates, because it is a form. The body in which it does not dominate shows but a discolored hue, and ceases being beautiful, merely because it does not participate in the whole form of color. Once more, thus do the hidden harmonies of sound produce audible harmonies, and also yield to the soul the idea of beauty, though showing it in another order of things. Audible harmonies can be expressed in numbers, not indeed in any kind of numbers, but only in such as can serve to produce form and to make it dominate. Transition from sense-beauty to intellectual beauty. So much then for sense-beauties, which, descending on matter like images and shadows, beautify it, and thereby compel our admiration. 4. Now we shall leave the senses in their lower sphere, and we shall rise to the contemplation of the beauties of a superior order, of which the senses have no intuition, but which the soul perceives and expresses. Interior beauties could not be appreciated without an interior model. Just as we could not have spoken of sense-beauties, if we had never seen them, nor recognized them as such, if, in respect to them, we had been similar to persons born blind, likewise we would not know enough to say anything about the beauty either of the arts or sciences, 
or of anything of the kind if we were not already in possession of this kind of beauty nor of the splendour of virtue if we had not contemplated the golden face of justice and of temperance before whose splendour the morning and evening stars grow pale moral beauties more delightful than sense beauties to see these beauties they must be contemplated by the faculty our soul has received then while contemplating them we shall experience far more pleasure astonishment and admiration than in contemplation of the sense beauties because we will have the intuition of veritable beauties the sentiments inspired by beauty are admiration a gentle charm desire love and a pleasurable impulse they who feel these sentiments most keenly are called lovers such are the sentiments for invisible beauties which should be felt and indeed are experienced by all souls but especially by the most loving in the presence of beautiful bodies all indeed see them but not all are equally moved those who are most moved are designated lovers the cause of these emotions is the invisible soul five let us now propound a question about experiences to these men who feel love for incorporeal beauties what do you feel in the presence of the noble occupations the good morals the habits of temperance and in general of virtuous acts and sentiments and of all that constitutes the beauty of souls what do you feel when you contemplate your inner beauty what is the source of your ecstasies or your enthusiasms whence come your desires to unite yourselves to your real selves and to refresh yourselves by retirement from your bodies such indeed are the experiences of those who love genuinely what then is the object which causes these your emotions it is neither a figure nor a colour nor any size it is that colourless invisible soul which possesses a wisdom equally invisible this soul in which may be seen shining the splendour of all the virtues when one discovers in oneself or contemplates in others the greatness of character the justice of the heart the pure temperance the imposing countenance of valour dignity and modesty proceeding alone firmly calmly and imperturbably and above all intelligence resembling the divinity by its brilliant light what is the reason that we declare these objects to be beautiful when we are transported with admiration and love for them they exist they manifest themselves and whoever beholds them will never be able to restrain himself from confessing them to be veritable beings now what are these genuine beings they are beautiful love of beauty explained by aversion for opposite but reason is not yet satisfied reason wonders why these veritable beings give the soul which experiences them the property of exciting love from which proceeds this halo of light which so to speak crowns all virtues consider the things contrary to these beautiful objects 
and with them compare what may be ugly in the soul. If we can discover of what ugliness consists, and what is its cause, we shall have achieved an important element of the solution we are seeking. Let us picture to ourselves an ugly soul. She will be given up to intemperance, and be unjust, abandoned to a host of passions, troubled, full of fears caused by her cowardliness, and of envy by her degradation. She will be longing only for vile and perishable things. She will be entirely depraved, will love nothing but impure wishes, will have no life but the sensual, and will take pleasure in her turpitude. Would we not explain such a state by saying that under the very mask of beauty turpitude had invaded this soul, brutalized her, soiled her with all kinds of vices, rendering her incapable of a pure life, and pure sentiments, and had reduced her to an existence obscure, infected with evil, poisoned by lethal germs, that it had hindered her from contemplating anything she should, forcing her to remain solitary because it misled her out from herself towards inferior and gloomy regions. The soul, fallen into this state of impurity, seized with an irresistible inclination towards the things of sense, absorbed by her intercourse with the body, sunk into matter, and having even received it within herself, has changed form by her admixture with an inferior nature. Not otherwise would be a man fallen into slimy mud, who no longer would present to view his primitive beauty, and would exhibit only the appearance of the mud that had defiled him. His ugliness would be derived from something foreign, and to recover his pristine beauty he would have to wash off his defilement, and by purification be restored to what he once was. Ugliness is only a foreign accretion. We have the right to say that the soul becomes ugly by mingling with the body, confusing herself with it, by inclining herself towards it. For a soul, ugliness consists in being impure, no longer unmingled, like gold tarnished by particles of earth. As soon as this dross is removed, and nothing but gold remains, then again it is beautiful, because separated from every foreign body, and is restored to its unique nature. Likewise the soul, released from the passions begotten by her intercourse with the body, when she yields herself too much to it, delivered from exterior impressions, purified from the blemishes contracted from her alliance with the body, that is, reduced to herself, she lays aside that ugliness which is derived from a nature foreign to her. Virtues are only purifications. 6. Thus, according to the ancient, platonic, or empedoclean maxim, courage, temperance, all the virtues, nay, even prudence, are but purifications. The mysteries were therefore wise in teaching that the man who has not been purified will, in hell, dwell at the bottom of a swamp, for everything that is not pure, because of its very perversity, delights in mud, 
just as we see the impure swine wallow in the mud with delight. And indeed, what would real temperance consist of if it be not to avoid attaching oneself to the pleasures of the body, and to flee from them as impure, and as only proper for an impure being? What else is courage, unless no longer to fear death, which is mere separation of the soul from the body? Whoever, therefore, is willing to withdraw from the body could surely not fear death. Magnanimity is nothing but scorn of things here below. Last, prudence is the thought which, detached from the earth, raises the soul to the intelligible world. The purified soul, therefore, becomes a form, a reason, an incorporeal and intellectual essence. She belongs entirely to the divinity, in whom resides the source of the beautiful, and of all the qualities which have affinity with it. The soul's welfare is to resemble the divinity. Restored to intelligence, the soul sees her own beauty increase. Indeed, her own beauty consists of the intelligence with its ideas. Only when united to intelligence is the soul really isolated from all the remainder. That is the reason that it is right to say that the soul's welfare and beauty lie in assimilating herself to the divinity, because it is the principle of beauty and of the essences, or rather, being is beauty, while the other nature, non-being, matter, is ugliness. This is the first evil, evil in itself, just as that one, the first principle, is the good and the beautiful for good and beauty are identical. Consequently, beauty or good, and evil or ugliness, are to be studied by the same methods. The first rank is to be assigned to beauty, which is identical with the good, and from which is derived the intelligence which is beautiful by itself. The soul is beautiful by intelligence. Then the other things, like actions and studies, are beautiful by the soul which gives them a form. It is still the soul which beautifies the bodies to which is ascribed this perfection. Being a divine essence, and participating in beauty, when she seizes an object or subjects it to her dominion, she gives to it the beauty that the nature of this object enables it to receive. Approach to the good consists in simplification. We must still ascend to the good to which every soul aspires. Whoever has seen it knows what I still have to say, and knows the beauty of the good. Indeed, the good is desirable for its own sake. It is the goal of our desires. To attain it we have to ascend to the higher regions, turn towards them, and lay aside the garment which we put on when descending here below, just as in the Eleusinian or Isiac mysteries, those who are admitted to penetrate into the recesses of the sanctuary, after having purified themselves, lay aside every garment, and advance stark naked. The supreme purpose of life is the ecstatical vision of God. 7. Thus, in her ascension towards divinity, the soul advances, until, having risen above everything that is foreign to her, she alone, with him who is alone, 
beholds in all his simplicity and purity him from whom all depends to whom all aspires from whom everything draws its existence life and thought he who beholds him is overwhelmed with love with ardour desiring to unite himself with him entranced with ecstasy men who have not yet seen him desire him as the good those who have admire him as sovereign beauty struck simultaneously with stupor and pleasure thrilling in a painless orgasm loving with a genuine emotion with an ardour without equal scorning all other affections and disdaining those things which formerly they characterized as beautiful this is the experience of those to whom divinities and guardians have appeared they reck no longer of the beauty of other bodies imagine if you can the experiences of those who behold beauty itself the pure beauty which because of its very purity is fleshless and bodiless outside of earth and heaven all these things indeed are contingent and composite they are not principles they are derived from him what beauty could one still wish to see after having arrived at vision of him who gives perfection to all beings though himself remains unmoved without receiving anything after finding rest in this contemplation and enjoying it by becoming assimilated to him being supreme beauty and the first beauty he beautifies those who love him and thereby they become worthy of love this is the great the supreme goal of souls this is the goal which arouses all their efforts if they do not wish to be disinherited of that sublime contemplation the enjoyment of which confers blessedness and privation of which is the greatest of earthly misfortunes real misfortune is not to lack beautiful colours nor beautiful bodies nor power nor dominion nor royalty it is quite sufficient to see oneself excluded from no more than possession of beauty this possession is precious enough to render worthless domination of a kingdom if not of the whole earth of the sea or even of the heavens if indeed it were possible while abandoning and scorning all that natural beauty to succeed in contemplating beauty face to face the method to achieve ecstasy is to close the eyes of the body eight how shall we start and later arrive at the contemplation of this ineffable beauty which like the divinity in the mysteries remains hidden in the recesses of a sanctuary and does not show itself outside where it might be perceived by the profane we must advance into the sanctuary penetrating into it if we have the strength to do so closing our eyes to the spectacle of terrestrial things without throwing a backward glance on the bodies whose graces formerly charmed us if we do still see corporeal beauties we must no longer rush at them but knowing that they are only images traces and adumbrations of a superior principle we will flee from them to approach him of whom they are merely the reflections whoever would let himself be misled by the pursuit of those vain shadows 
mistaking them for realities, would grasp only an image as fugitive as the fluctuating form reflected by the waters, and would resemble that senseless Narcissus, who, wishing to grasp that image himself, according to the fable, disappeared, carried away by the current. Likewise he would wish to embrace corporeal beauties, and not release them, would plunge not his body, but his soul, into the gloomy abysses, so repugnant to intelligence. He would be condemned to total blindness, and on this earth, as well as in hell, he would see naught but mendacious shades. HOW TO FLY TO OUR FATHERLAND this indeed is the occasion to quote from Homer, with peculiar force. Let us fly unto our dear fatherland. But how shall we fly? How escape from here? Is the question Ulysses asks himself in that allegory which represents him trying to escape from the magic sway of Circe or Calypso, where neither the pleasure of the eyes nor the view of fleshly beauty were able to hold him in those enchanted places. Our fatherland is the region whence we descend here below. It is there that dwells our father. But how shall we return thither? What means shall be employed to return us thither? Not our feet indeed. All they could do would be to move us from one place of the earth to another. Neither is it a chariot, nor ship which need be prepared. All these vain helps must be left aside, and not even considered. We must close the eyes of the body, to open another vision, which indeed all possess, but very few employ. How to train this interior vision? 9. But how shall we train this interior vision? At the moment of its first awakening it cannot contemplate beauties too dazzling, your soul must then first be accustomed to contemplate the noblest occupations of man, and then the beautiful deeds, not indeed those performed by artists, but those good deeds done by virtuous men. Later, contemplate the souls of those who performed these beautiful actions. Nevertheless, how will you discover the beauty which their excellent soul possesses? Withdraw within yourself, and examine yourself. If you do not yet therein discover beauty, do as the artist, who cuts off, polishes, purifies, until he has adorned his statue with all the marks of beauty. Remove from your soul, therefore, all that is superfluous, straighten out all that is crooked, purify and illuminate what is obscure, and do not cease perfecting your statue until the divine resplendence of virtue shines forth upon your sight until you see temperance in its holy purity seated in your breast, when you shall have acquired this perfection, when you will see it in yourself, when you will purely dwell within yourself, when you will cease to meet within yourself any obstacle to unity, when nothing foreign will any more by its admixture alter the simplicity of your interior essence, when within your whole being you will be a veritable light, immeasurable in size, uncircumscribed by any figure within narrow boundaries, unincreasable because reaching out to infinity, and entirely incommensurable because it transcends all measure and quantity. 
when you shall have become such, then, having become sight itself, you may have confidence in yourself, for you will no longer need any guide. Then must you observe carefully, for it is only by the eye that then will open itself within you that you will be able to perceive supreme beauty. But if you try to fix on it an eye soiled by vice, an eye that is impure or weak, so as not to be able to support the splendor of so brilliant an object, that eye will see nothing, not even if it were shown a sight easy to grasp. The organ of vision will first have to be rendered analogous and similar to the object it is to contemplate. Never would the eye have seen the sun unless first it had assumed its form. Likewise the soul could never see beauty unless she herself first became beautiful. To obtain the view of the beautiful and of the divinity, every man must begin by rendering himself beautiful and divine. THE LANDMARKS OF THE PATH TO ecstasy. Thus he will first rise to intelligence, and he will there contemplate beauty, and declare that all this beauty resides in the ideas. Indeed, in them everything is beautiful, because they are the daughters, and the very essence of intelligence. Above intelligence he will meet him whom we call the nature of the good, and who causes beauty to radiate around him, so that, to repeat, the first thing that is met is beauty. If a distinction is to be established among the intelligibles, we might say that intelligible beauty is the locus of ideas, and that the good, which is located above the beautiful, is its source and principle. If, however, we desire to locate the good and the beautiful within one single principle, we might regard this one principle first as good, and only afterwards as beauty. End of Ennead 1, Book 6Ennead 1, Book 7, by Plotinus, translated by Kenneth Sylvan Guthrie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Geoffrey Edwards. First Ennead, Book 7, of the first good and of the other goods. The supreme good as and of all other goods. 1. Could any one say that there was for any being any good but the activity of living according to nature? For a being composed of several parts, however, the good will consist in the activity of its best part, an action which is peculiar, natural, and unfailing. Further, as the soul is an excellent being and directs her activity towards something excellent, this excellent aim is not merely excellent relatively to the soul, but is the absolute good. If, then, there be a principle which does not direct its action towards any other thing, because it is the best of beings, being above them all, it can be this only because all other beings trend towards it. This, then, evidently, is the absolute good by virtue of which all other beings participate therein. 
participation in good two methods now there are two methods of participation in the good the first is to become similar to it the second is to direct one's activity towards it if then the direction of one's desire and one's action towards the better principle be a good then can the absolute good itself neither regard nor desire any other thing remaining in abiding rest being the source and principle of all actions conforming to nature giving to other things the form of the good without acting on them as they on the contrary direct their actions thereto permanence the chief note of absolute good only by permanence not by action nor even by thought is this principle the good for if it be super-being it must also be super-activity super-intelligence and thought the principle from which everything depends while itself depending on nothing else must therefore be recognized as the good this divinity must therefore persist in his condition while everything turns towards him just as in a circle all the radii meet in the centre an example of this is the sun which is a centre of the light that is as it were suspended from that planet the light accompanies the sun everywhere and never parts from it and even if you wished to separate it on one side it would not any the less remain concentrated around it all things depend on the good by unity essence and quality two let us study the dependence of everything on the good the inanimate trends toward the soul while the animate soul trends towards the good through intelligence as far as anything possesses unity essence or form it participates in the good by its participation in unity essence and form each being participates in the good even though the latter be only an image for the things in which it participates are only images of unity essence and form for the first soul as she approaches intelligence she acquires a life which approaches closer to truth and she owes this to intelligence thus by virtue of intelligence she possesses the form of the good to possess the latter all she needs to do is to turn her looks towards it for intelligence is the next after the good therefore to those to whom it is granted to live life is the good likewise for those who participate in intelligence intelligence is the good consequently such a being as joins intelligence to life possesses a double good there is no unalloyed evil for the living being three though life be a good it does not belong to all beings life is incomplete for the evil person as for an eye that does not see distinctly neither accomplish their purpose if for us life though mingled as it is be a good even if an imperfect one how shall we continue to assert that death is not an evil but for whom would it be an evil this we must ask because evil must necessarily be an attribute of somebody now 
there is no more evil for a being which though even existing is deprived of life any more than for a stone as they say but if after death the being still live if it be still animate it will possess good and so much the more as it exercises its faculties without the body if it be united to the universal soul evidently there can be no evil for it any more than for the gods who possess good unmingled with evil similar is the case of the soul which preserves her purity inasmuch as he who loses her finds that life and not death is the real evil if there be chastisements in hades again is life an evil for the soul because she is not pure if further we define life as the union of the soul with the body and death as their separation the soul can pass through both these conditions without on that account being unhappy or losing her hold on the good by virtue life changes from an evil to a good how is death not an evil if life be a good certainly life is a good for such as possess the good it is a good not because the soul is united to the body but because she repels evil by virtue without the latter death would rather be a good because it delivers us from the body to resume by itself life in a body is evil but by virtue the soul locates herself in the good not by perpetuating the existing corporeal union but by separating herself from the body end of ennead one book seven ennead one book eight by plotinus translated by kenneth sylvan guthrie this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by geoffrey edwards first ennead book eight of the nature and origin of evils questions to be discussed one studying the origin of evils that might affect all beings in general or some one class in particular it is reasonable to begin by defining evil from a consideration of its nature that would be the best way to discover whence it arises where it resides to whom it may happen and in general to decide if it be something real which one of our faculties then can inform us of the nature of evil this question is not easy to solve because there must be an analogy between the knower and the known the intelligence and the soul may indeed cognize forms and fix their desires on them because they themselves are forms but evil which consists in the absence of all goods could not be described as a form but inasmuch as there can be but one single science to embrace even contraries and as the evil is the contrary of the good knowledge of the good implies that of evil therefore to determine the nature of evil we shall first have to determine that of good for the higher things must precede the lower as some are forms and others are not being rather a privation of the good 
just in what sense evil is the contrary of the good must also be determined as for instance if the one be the first and matter the last or whether the one be form and matter be its absence of this further a primary and secondary evil a definition of evil by contrast with the good two let us now determine the nature of the good at least so far as is demanded by the present discussion the good is the principle on which all depends to which everything aspires from which everything issues and of which everything has need as to him he suffices to himself being complete so he stands in need of nothing he is the measure and the end of all things and from him spring intelligence being soul life and intellectual contemplation nature of divine intelligence all these beautiful things exist as far as he does but he is the one principle that possesses supreme beauty a principle that is superior to the things that are best he reigns royally in the intelligible world being intelligence itself very differently from what we call human intelligences the latter indeed are all occupied with propositions discussions about the meanings of words reasonings examinations of the validity of conclusions observing the concatenation of causes being incapable of possessing truth a priori and though they be intelligences being devoid of all ideas before having been instructed by experience though they nevertheless were intelligences such is not the primary intelligence on the contrary it possesses all things though remaining within itself it is all things it possesses all things without possessing them in the usual acceptation of that term the things that subsist in it not differing from it and not being separated from each other each one of them is all the others is everything and everywhere although not confounded with other things and remaining distinct therefrom nature of the universal soul the power which participates in intelligence the universal soul does not participate in it in a manner such as to be equal to it but only in the measure of her ability to participate therein she is the first actualization of intelligence the first being that intelligence though remaining within itself begets she directs her whole activity towards supreme intelligence and lives exclusively thereby moving from outside intelligence and around it according to the laws of harmony the universal soul fixes her glance upon it by contemplation penetrating into its inmost depths through intelligence she sees the divinity himself such is the nature of the serene and blissful existence of the divinities a life where evil has no place evil exists as a consequence of the derivative goods of the third rank if everything stopped there and if there were nothing beyond the three principles here described 
evil would not exist, and there would be nothing but goods. But there are goods of the first, second, and third ranks, though all relate to the king of all things, who is their author, and from whom they derive their goodness, yet the goods of the second rank relate more specially to the second principle, and to the third principle, the goods of the third rank. Nature of Evil 3. As these are real beings, and as the first principle is their superior, evil could not exist in such beings, and still less in him who is superior to them, for all these things are good. Evil, then, must be located in non-being, and must, so to speak, be its form, referring to the things that mingle with it, or have some community with it. This non-being, however, is not absolute non-being. Its difference from being resembles the difference between being and movement or rest, but only as its image or something still more distant from reality. Within this non-being are comprised all sense-objects and all their passive modifications, or evil may be something still more inferior, like their accident or principle or one of the things that contribute to its constitution. To gain some conception of evil, it may be represented by the contrast between measure and incommensurability, between indetermination and its goal, between lack of form and the creating principle of form, between lack and self-sufficiency, as the perpetual, unlimited, and changeableness, as passivity, insatiableness, and absolute poverty. Those are not the mere accidents of evil, but its very essence. All of that can be discovered when any part of evil is examined. The other objects, when they participate in the evil, and resemble it, become evil without, however, being absolute evil. Evil possesses a lower form of being. All these things participate in a being. They do not differ from it. They are identical with it, and constitute it. For if evil be an accident in something, then evil, though not being a real being, must be something by itself. Just as, for the good, there is the good in itself, and the good considered as an attribute of a foreign subject. Likewise, for evil, one may distinguish evil in itself, and evil as accident. Evil as infinite, and formlessness in itself. It might be objected that it is impossible to conceive of indetermination outside of the indeterminate, any more than determination outside of the determinate, or measure outside of the measured. We shall have to answer that just as determination does not reside in the determined, or measure in the measured, so indetermination cannot exist within the indeterminate. If it can exist in something other than itself, it will be either in the indeterminate or in the determinate. If in the indeterminate, it is evident that it itself is indeterminate, and needs no indetermination to become such. If, on the other hand, it be claimed that indetermination exists, in the determinate 
it is evident that the determinate cannot admit indetermination. This, therefore, demands the existence of something infinite in itself, and formless in itself, which would combine all the characteristics mentioned above as the characteristics of evil. As to evil things, they are such because evil is mingled with them, either because they contemplate evil, or because they fulfill it. The primary evil is evil in itself. Reason, therefore, forces us to recognize as the primary evil, evil in itself. This is matter which is the subject of figure, form, determination, and limitation, which owes its ornaments to others, which has nothing good in itself, which is but a vain image by comparison with the real beings. In other word, the essence of evil, if such an essence can exist matter as the secondary evil. 4. So far as the nature of bodies participates in matter, it is an evil. Yet it could not be the primary evil, for it has a certain form. Nevertheless, this form possesses no reality, and is, besides, deprived of life, for bodies corrupt each other mutually. Being agitated by an unregulated movement, they hinder the soul from carrying out her proper movement. They are in a perpetual flux, contrary to the immutable nature of essences. Therefore, they constitute the secondary evil. The soul is not evil by herself, but may degenerate by looking at darkness. By herself the soul is not evil, and not every soul is evil. What soul deserves to be so considered? that of the man who, according to the expression of Plato, is a slave to the body. In this man it is natural for the soul to be evil. It is indeed the irrational part of the soul which harbors all that constitutes evil. Indetermination, excess, and need, from which are derived intemperance, cowardliness, and all the vices of the soul, the involuntary passions, mothers of false opinions, which lead us to consider the things we seek or avoid as goods or evils. But what produces this evil? How shall we make a cause or a principle of it? To begin with, the soul is neither independent of matter, nor by herself perverse. By virtue of her union with the body, which is material, she is mingled with indetermination, and so to a certain point, deprived of the form which embellishes and which supplies measure. Further, that reason should be hindered in its operations, and cannot see well, must be due to the soul's being hindered by passions, and obscured by the darkness with which matter surrounds her. The soul inclines towards matter. Thus the soul fixes her glance not on what is essence, but on what is simple generation. Now the principle of generation is matter, whose nature is so bad that matter communicates it to the beings which, even without being united thereto, merely look at it. Being the privation of good, matter contains none of it, and assimilates to itself all that touches it. Therefore the perfect soul, being turned towards ever-pure intelligence, 
repels matter, indeterminateness, the lack of measure, and, in short, evil. The perfect soul does not approach to it, does not lower her looks. She remains pure and determined by intelligence. The soul, which does not remain in this state, and which issues from herself to unite with the body, not being determined by the first, the perfect, is no more than an image of the perfect soul, because she lacks good, and is filled with indetermination. The soul sees nothing but darkness. The soul already contains matter, because she looks at what she cannot see, or, in the everyday expression, because the soul looks at darkness. Primary and secondary evil for the soul. 5. Since the lack of good is the cause that the soul looks at darkness and mingles therewith, the lack of good and darkness is primary evil for the soul. The secondary evil will be the darkness and the nature of evil considered not in matter but before matter. Evil consists not in the lack of any particular thing but of everything in general. Nothing is evil merely because it lacks a little of being good. Its nature might still be perfect. But what, like matter, lacks good entirely, is essentially evil and possesses nothing good. Nature, indeed, does not possess essence, or it would participate in the good. Only by verbal similarity can we say that matter is, while we can truly say that matter is absolute non-entity. A mere lack of good, therefore, may be characterized as not being good, but complete lack is evil, while a lack of medium intensity consists in the possibility of falling into evil, and is already an evil. Evil, therefore, is not any particular evil, as injustice, or any special vice. Evil is that which is not yet anything of that, being nothing definite. Injustice and the other vices must be considered as kinds of evil, distinguished from each other by mere accidents, as, for instance, what occurs by malice. Besides, the different kinds of evil differ among each other either by the matter in which evil resides, or by the parts of the soul to which it refers, as sight, desire, and passion. Relation between external and internal evil If we grant the existence of evils external to the soul, we shall be forced to decide about their relation to sickness, ugliness, or poverty. Sickness has been explained as a lack or excess of material bodies which fail to support order or measure. The cause of ugliness also has been given as deficient adjustment of matter to form. Poverty has been described as the need or lack of objects necessary to life as a result of our union with matter, whose nature is the Heraclitean and Stoic indigence. From such definitions it would follow that we are not the principle of evil, and are not evil in ourselves for these evils existed before us. Only in spite of themselves would men yield to vice. 
the evils of the soul are avoidable, but not all men possess the necessary firmness. Evil, therefore, is caused by the presence of matter in sense-objects, and is not identical with the wickedness of men. For wickedness does not exist in all men. Some triumph over wickedness, while they who do not even need to triumph over it are still better. In all cases, men triumph over evil by those of their faculties that are not engaged in matter. In what sense evils are universal and unavoidable? 6. Let us examine the significance of the doctrine that evils cannot be destroyed, that they are necessary, that they do not exist among the divinities, but that they ever besiege our mortal nature and the place in which we dwell. Surely heaven is free from all evil because it moves eternally with regularity, in perfect order, because in the stars is neither injustice nor any other kind of evil, because they do not conflict with each other in their courses, and because their revolutions are presided over by the most beautiful harmony. On the contrary, the earth reveals injustice and disorder, chiefly because our nature is mortal, and we dwell in a lower place. But when Plato says that we must flee from here below, he does not mean that we should leave the earth, but, while remaining therein, practice justice, piety, and wisdom. It is wickedness that must be fled from, because wickedness and its consequences are the evil of man. Evil is not goods qualitative, but only figurative antagonist. When Theodore tells Socrates that evils would be annihilated if men practiced Socrates' teachings, the latter answers that it is impossible, for evil is necessary even if only as the contrary of good. But how then can wickedness, which is the evil of man, be the contrary of good? Because it is the contrary of virtue. Now virtue, without being good in itself, is still a good, a good which makes us dominate matter. But how can good in itself, which is not a quality, have a contrary? Besides, why need the existence of one thing imply its contrary? Though we may grant that there is a possibility of the existence of the contrary of some things, as, for instance, that a man in good health might become sick. There is no such necessity. Nor does Plato assert that the existence of each thing of this kind necessarily implies that of its contrary. He makes this statement exclusively of the good. But how can there be a contrary to good, if the good be being, let alone above being? Evidently, in reference to particular beings, there can be nothing contrary to being. This is proved by induction, but the proposition has not been demonstrated as regards universal being. What, then, is the contrary of universal being, and first principles in general? The contrary of being must be non-entity. The contrary of the nature of the good is the nature and principle of evil. 
these two natures are indeed respectively the principles of goods and of evils all their elements are mutually opposed so that both these natures considered in their totality are still more opposed than the other contraries the latter indeed belong to the same form to the same kind and they have something in common in whatever subjects they may be as to the contraries that are essentially distinguished from each other whose nature is constituted of elements opposed to the constitutive elements of the other those contraries are absolutely opposed to each other since the connotation of that word implies things as opposite to each other as possible measure determination and the other characteristics of the divine nature are the opposites of incommensurability indefiniteness and the other contrary things that constitute the nature of evil each one of these wholes therefore is the contrary of the other the being of the one is that which is essentially and absolutely false that of the other is genuine being the falseness of the one is therefore the contrary of the truth of the other likewise what pertains to the being of the one is the contrary of what belongs to the being of the other we also see that it is not always true to say that there is no contrary to being for we acknowledge that water and fire are contraries even if they did not contain the common element of matter of which heat and cold humidity and dryness are accidents if they existed alone by themselves if their being were complete without any common subject there would still be an opposition and an opposition of being therefore the things that are completely separate which have nothing in common which are as distant as possible are by nature contrary this is not an opposition of quality nor of any kinds of beings it is an opposition resulting from extreme distance and from being composed of contraries thereby communicating this characteristic to their elements good implies evil because matter is necessary to the world seven why is the existence of both good and evil necessary because matter is necessary to the existence of the world the latter is necessarily composed of contraries and consequently it could not exist without matter in this case the nature of this world is a mixture of intelligence and necessity what it receives from divinity are goods its evils derive from the primordial nature the term used by plato to designate matter as a simple substance yet unadorned by a divinity but what does he mean by mortal nature when he says that evils besiege this region here below he means the universe as appears from the following quotations since you are born you are not immortal but by my help you shall not perish in this case it is right to say that evils cannot be annihilated how then can one flee from them not by changing one's locality as plato says but by acquiring virtue and by separating from the body which simultaneously 
is separation from matter. For being attached to the body is also attachment to matter. It is in the same sense that Plato explains being separated from the body, or not being separated from it. By dwelling with the divinities he means being united to the intelligible objects, for it is in them that inheres immortality. Existence of evil is necessary as last material degree of being. Here follows still another demonstration of the necessity of evil. Since good does not remain alone, evil must necessarily exist by issuing from the good. We might express this differently as the degradation and exhaustion of the divine power, which in the whole hierarchic series of successive emanations weakens from degree to degree. There must, therefore, be a last degree of being, beyond which nothing further can be begotten, and that is evil. Just as the existence of something after a first good is necessary, so must also a last degree of being be necessary. Now the last degree is matter, and contains nothing more of the first, and as matter and evil are identical, the existence of evil is necessary. Matter is cause of evil, even if corporeal. 8. It may still be objected that it is not matter that makes us wicked, for it is not matter that produces ignorance and perverted appetites. If indeed these appetites mislead us to evil as a result of the perversity of the body, we must seek its cause not in matter but in form, in the qualities of the bodies. These, for instance, are heat, cold, bitterness, pungency, and the other qualities of the bodily secretions, or the atonic condition, or inflammation of certain organs, or certain dispositions which produce the difference of appetites, and, if you please, false opinions. Evil, therefore, is form rather than matter. Even under this mistaken hypothesis we are nonetheless driven to acknowledge that matter is the evil. Equality does not always produce the same results within or outside of matter. Thus the form of the axe without iron does not cut. The forms that inhere in matter are not always what they would be if they were outside of it. The seminal reasons, when inhering in matter, are by it corrupted and filled with its nature. As fire, when separate from matter, does not burn, so form, when remaining by itself, affects what it would if it were in matter. Matter dominates any principle that appears within it, alters it, and corrupts it by imparting thereto its own nature, which is contrary to the good. It does not indeed substitute cold for heat, but it adds to the form, as, for instance, to the form of fire its formless substance, to figure adding its shapelessness, to measure its excess and lack, proceeding thus until it has degraded things, transubstantiating them into its own nature. That is the reason that, 
in the nutrition of animals what has been ingested does not remain what it was before the foods that enter into the body of a dog for instance are by assimilation transformed into blood and canine secretions and in general are transformed according to the animal that receives them thus even under the hypothesis that evils are referred to the body matter is the cause of evils mastery of these corporeal dispositions is not easy it may be objected that one ought to master these dispositions of the body but the principle that could triumph over them is pure only if it flee from here below the appetites which exercise the greatest force come from a certain complexion of the body and differ according to its nature consequently it is not easy to master them there are men who have no judgment because they are cold and heavy on account of their bad constitution on the contrary there are others who because of their temperament are light and inconstant this is proved by the difference of our own successive dispositions when we are gorged we have appetites and thoughts that differ from those we experience when starved and our dispositions vary even according to the degrees of satiety definition of primary and secondary evil in short the primary evil is that which by itself lacks measure the secondary evil is that which accidentally becomes formless either by assimilation or participation in the front rank is the darkness in the second that which has become obscured thus vice being in the soul the result of ignorance and formlessness is of secondary rank it is not absolute evil because on its side virtue is not absolute good it is good only by its assimilation and participation with the good b by what part of our nature we come to know evil how the soul comes to know vice nine how do we get to know vice and virtue as to virtue we know it by the very intelligence and by wisdom for wisdom knows itself but how can we know vice just as we observe that an object is not in itself straight by applying a rule so we discern vice by this characteristic that it does not comport itself with virtue but do we or do we not have direct intuition thereof we do not have the intuition of absolute vice because it is indeterminate we know it therefore by a kind of abstraction observing that virtue is entirely lacking we cognize relative vice by noticing that it lacks some part of virtue we see a part of virtue and by this part judging what is lacking in order completely to constitute the form of virtue we call vice what is lacking to it defining as the indeterminate evil what is deprived of virtue similarly with matter if for instance we notice a figure that is ugly because its seminal reason being unable to dominate matter has been unable to hide its deformity we notice ugliness by what is lacking to form 
how to see matter by dialectic abstraction. But how do we know that which is absolutely formless matter? We make abstraction of all kinds of form, and what remains we call matter. We allow ourselves to be penetrated by a kind of shapelessness, by the mere fact that we make abstraction of all shape in order to be able to represent matter by a bastard reasoning. Consequently, intelligence becomes altered and ceases to be genuine intelligence when it dares in this way to look at what does not belong to its domain. It resembles the eye, which withdraws from light to see darkness, and which, on that very account, does not see. Thus, in not seeing, the eye sees darkness so far as it is naturally capable of seeing it. Thus, intelligence, which hides light within itself, and which, so to speak, issues from itself, by advancing towards things alien to its nature, without bringing along its own light, places itself in a state contrary to its being to cognize a nature contrary to its own. But enough of this. Matter is both without qualities and evil. 10. It may well be asked by Stoics how matter can be evil, as it is without quality. That matter possesses no qualities can be said in the sense that by itself it has none of the qualities it is to receive, or to which matter is to serve as substrate, but cannot be said in the sense that it will possess no nature. Now, if it have a nature, what hinders this nature from being bad, without this being bad being a quality? Nothing indeed is a quality, but what serves to qualify something different from itself? A quality is, therefore, an accident. A quality is that which can be mentioned as the attribute of a subject other than itself. But matter is not the attribute of something alien. It is the subject to which accidents are related. Therefore, since every quality is an accident, matter whose nature is not to be an accident is without quality. If, besides, quality, taken in general, itself be without quality, how could one say of matter, so far as it has not yet received any quality, that it is in some manner qualified? It is therefore possible to assert of matter that it both has no quality and yet is evil. Matter is not evil because it has a quality, but just because it has none. If indeed matter possessed a form, it might indeed be bad, but it would not be a nature contrary to all form. Matter as deprivation is still without qualities. 11. It may be further objected that nature, independent of all form, is deprivation. Now deprivation is always the attribute of some hypostatic substance, instead of itself being substance. If, then, evil consists in privation, it is the attribute of the substrate deprived of form. And, on that account, it could not exist by itself. If it be in the soul that we consider evil, privation in the soul will constitute vice and wickedness, 
and there will be no need to have recourse to anything external to explain it. Matter may exist, and yet be evil. Elsewhere it is objected that matter does not exist. Here the attempt is to show that matter is not evil in so far as it exists. If this were the case, we should not seek the origin of evil outside of the soul, but it would be located within the soul herself. There evil consists in the absence of good. But evidently the soul would have nothing good on the hypothesis that privation of form is an accident of the being which desires to receive form, that consequently the privation of good is an accident of the soul, and that the latter produces within herself wickedness by her seminal reason. Another result would be that the soul would have no life and be inanimate, which would lead to the absurdity that the soul is no soul. The soul cannot possess evil within herself. We are thus forced to assert that the soul possesses life by virtue of her seminal reason, so that she does not by herself possess privation of good. Then she must from intelligence derive a trace of good, and have the form of good. The soul, therefore, cannot by herself be evil. Consequently, she is not the first evil, nor does she contain it as an accident, since she is not absolutely deprived of good. Relative privation is impossible. 12. To the objection that in the soul wickedness and evil are not an absolute privation, but only a relative privation of good, it may be answered that in this case, if the soul simultaneously contain possession and privation of the good, she will have possessed a feeling mingled of good and evil, and not of unmingled evil. We will still not have found the first evil, the absolute evil. The good of the soul will reside in her essence, being. Evil will only be an accident thereof. Evil as an obstacle to the soul. 13. Another hypothesis is that evil owes its character only to its being an obstacle for the soul. As certain objects are bad for the eye because they hinder it from seeing. In this case, the evil of the soul would be the cause that produces the evil, and it would produce it without being absolute evil. If, then, vice be an obstacle for the soul, it will not be absolute evil, but the cause of evil, as virtue is not the good, and only contributes to acquiring it. If virtue be not good, and vice be not evil, the result is that since virtue is neither absolute beauty nor goodness, vice is neither absolute ugliness nor evil. We hold that virtue is neither absolute beauty nor absolute goodness, because above and before it is absolute beauty and goodness. Only because the soul participates in these is virtue or beauty considered a good. Now, as the soul, by rising above virtue, meets absolute beauty and goodness, thus, in descending below wickedness, the soul discovers absolute evil. 
to arrive at the intuition of evil the soul therefore starts from wickedness if indeed an intuition of evil be at all possible finally when the soul descends she participates in evil she rushes completely into the region of diversity and plunging downwards she falls into a murky mire if she fell into absolute wickedness her characteristic would no longer be wickedness and she would exchange it for a still lower nature even though mingled with a contrary nature wickedness indeed still retains something human the vicious man therefore dies so far as a soul can die now when in connection with the soul we speak of dying we mean that while she is engaged in the body she penetrates further into matter and becomes saturated with it then when the soul has left the body she once more falls into the same mud until she have managed to return into the intelligible world and weaned her glance from this mire so long as she remains therein she may be said to have descended into hell and to be slumbering there weakness of the soul as an explanation of evil fourteen wickedness is by some explained as weakness of the soul because the wicked soul is impressionable mobile easy to lead to evil disposed to listen to her passions and equally likely to become angry and to be reconciled she yields inconsiderately to vain ideas like the weakest works of art and of nature which are easily destroyed by winds and storms this theory is attractive but implies a totally new conception that of weakness of soul and it would have to explain this weakness and whence it is derived for weakness in a soul is very different from weakness in a body but just as in the body weakness consists in inability to fulfil a function in being too impressionable the same fault in the soul might by analogy be called by the same name unless matter be equally the cause of both weaknesses reason however will have to explore the problem further and seek the cause of the soul-fault here called weakness. Weakness of the soul occurs chiefly in souls fallen into matter. In the soul weakness does not derive from an excess of density or rarefaction of leanness or stoutness, nor of any sickness such as fever. It must be met in souls which are either entirely separated from matter or in those joined to matter, or in both simultaneously. Now, as it does not occur in souls separated from matter, which are entirely pure and winged, and which, as perfect, carry out their functions without any obstacle, it remains that this weakness occurs in fallen souls, which are neither pure nor purified. For them, weakness consists not in the privation of anything but in the presence of something alien just as for instance weakness of the body consists in the presence of slime or bile we shall therefore be able to understand clearly the weakness of the soul by 
ferreting out the cause of the fall of the soul. The fall of the soul as descent into matter. Just as much as the soul, matter is included within the order of beings. For both, so to speak, there is but a single locality, for it would be an error to imagine two different localities, one for matter and the other for the soul such as, for instance, earth might be for matter, and air for the soul. The expression that soul occupies a locality different from matter means only that the soul is not in matter, that is, that the soul is not united to matter, that the soul does not together with matter constitute something unitary, and that for the soul matter is not a substrate that could contain the soul. That is how the soul is separated from matter. But the soul possesses several powers, since she contains the principle, intelligence, the medium, the discurse of reason, and the goal, the power of sensation, united to the generative and growing powers. Now, just like the beggar who presents himself at the door of the banquet hall, and with importunity asks to be admitted, matter tries to penetrate into the place occupied by the soul. But every place is sacred because nothing in it is deprived of the presence of the soul. Matter, on exposing itself to its rays, is illuminated by it, but it cannot harbor the principle that illuminates her, the soul. The latter, indeed, does not sustain matter, although she be present and does not even see it, because it is evil. Matter obscures, weakens the light that shines down upon her, by mingling its darkness with her. To the soul, matter affords the opportunity of producing generation, by clearing free access towards matter. For if matter were not present, the soul would not approach it. The fall of the soul is, therefore, a descent into matter. Hence comes her weakness, which means that not all of the soul's faculties are exercised, because matter hinders their action, intruding on the place occupied by the soul, and forcing her, so to speak, to retrench. Until the soul can manage to accomplish her return into the intelligible world, matter degrades what it has succeeded in abstracting from the soul. For the soul, therefore, matter is a cause of weakness and vice. Therefore, by herself, the soul is primitively evil, and is the first evil. By its presence, matter is the cause of the soul's exerting her generative powers, and being thus led to suffering, it is matter that causes the soul to enter into dealings with matter and thus to become evil. The soul, indeed, would never have approached matter unless the latter's presence had not afforded the soul an opportunity to produce generation. No more than the existence of the good can that of matter be denied. 15. Those who claim that matter does not exist will have to be referred to our extended discussion where we have demonstrated the necessity of its hypostatic existence. Those who would assert that evil does not belong among beings would, if logical, 
thereby also deny the existence of the good, and of anything that was desirable, thereby annihilating desire as well as aversion, and even thought, for everybody shares desire for the good, and aversion for the evil. Thought and knowledge simultaneously apply to good and evil. Thought itself is a good. Explanation of the Evil of the Soul We must therefore acknowledge the existence first of good unmixed, and then the nature mingled of good and evil. But what most participates in evil thereby trends towards absolute evil, and what participates in it to a less degree thereby trends towards good. For what is evil to soul? It is being in contact with inferior nature. Otherwise the soul would not have any appetite, pain, or fear. Indeed, fear is felt by us only for the composite of soul and body, fearing its dissolution, which thus is the cause of our pains and sufferings. The end of every appetite is to put aside what troubles it, or to forestall what might do so. As to sense representations, fancy, it is the impression made by an exterior object on the irrational part of the soul, a part which can receive this impression only because it is not indivisible. False opinion rises within the soul because it is no longer within truth, and this occurs because the soul is no longer pure. On the contrary, the desire of the intelligible leads the soul to unite intimately with intelligence, as she should, and there remain solidly entrenched, without declining towards anything inferior. It is only because of the nature and power of the good that evil does not remain pure evil. Matter, which is synonymous with evil, is like a captive which beauty covers with golden chains, so that the divinities might not see its nakedness, and that men might not be intruded on by it, or that men, if they must see it, shall be reminded of beauty on observing an even weakened image thereof. End of Ennead One, Book Eight Ennead One, Book Nine, by Plotinus, translated by Kenneth Sylvan Guthrie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Geoffrey Edwards. First Ennead, Book Nine, of Suicide. Evil effects of suicide on the soul herself. One. As says Pseudo-Zoroaster in his Magic Oracles, the soul should not be expelled from the body by violence, lest she go out dragging along with her something foreign, that is, corporeal. In this case she will be burdened with this foreign element whithersoever she may emigrate. By emigrating I mean passing into the beyond. On the contrary, one should wait until the entire body naturally detaches itself from the soul, in which case she no longer needs to pass into any other residence, being completely unburdened of the body. 
how to detach the soul from the body naturally. How will the body naturally detach itself from the soul? By the complete rupture of the bonds which keep the soul attached to the body, by the body's impotence to fetter the soul, on account of the complete destruction of the harmony which conferred this power on it. Voluntary soul detachment is forbidden. One may not voluntarily disengage oneself from the fetters of the body. When violence is employed, it is not the body which disengages itself from the soul. It is the soul which makes an effort to snatch herself from the body, and that by an action which accomplishes itself not in the state of impassibility, which suits a sage, but as the result of grief, or suffering, or of anger. Now, such an action is forbidden, or unworthy. Suicide unavailable, even to avoid insanity. May one not forestall delirium or insanity if one become aware of their approach. To begin with, insanity does not happen to a sage, and if it does, this accident should be considered one of those inevitable things which depend from fatality, and in which case one should direct one's path less according to his intrinsic quality than according to circumstances, for perhaps the poison one might select to eject the soul from the body might do nothing but injure the soul. Suicide is unadvisable for two reasons. If there be an appointed time for the life of each of us, it is not well to forestall the decree of providence, unless, as we have said, under absolute compulsion. Last, if rank obtained above depend on the state obtaining at the time of exit from the body, no man should separate himself from it so long as he might still achieve progress. End of Ennead 1, Book 9 And End of Ennead 1、Everybody、in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba da ba ba ba.